At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. Well, we're going to be going to uh, the book of Jonah next week, but today we get a chance to finish out the book of James. How many have been blessed by our study in the book of James? Amen? And as we close out today, I want to start today's message with a little exercise, a kind of mind game, if you will. I'm going to have our team in a moment show you three photos. The first will be of uh, a $50 bill. The second will be of a $50 bill. Now, one of them is a real $50 bill. The other is a counterfeit. Now, I'm going to see how good you are at picking out the real from the fake. All right, let's put the first picture up. First picture up for about 10 seconds or so. Look at it, examine it, about 10 seconds. All right, now take it down. And now, take it down. There we go. They were way more gracious to you than I wanted them to be. All right. Now, here's the second picture. Look at the second picture. You got about 10 seconds with that one as well. Second picture. All right. Now, take it down. All right. Now, some of you already got it. Don't blurt it out. All right. By the show of hands, how many think the first picture was the real one. How many think the first picture was the real one? All right, hands down. How many by the show of hands think the second picture was the real one? Show me your hands. All right, three of you. All right, praise God. All right, it was the first picture. Those of you who rose your hand, first picture was the right one. You see here on the second picture in the upper right-hand corner, it says, for motion picture use, only. That's Hollywood money, and we all know Hollywood money is not real money. You can take that down. Why do I have you look at this, and why do I have you uh, play this little game or experiment? It's because today, James wants us to be able to identify the counterfeit from the real. Now, some of you have a really good eye, and you can do that really easily. Some of us took us quite a few times before we caught it. I, I got to admit, telling myself, I didn't get it right off. It took me a little bit of time before I caught the difference. It's so easy in the busyness of life, as things are moving fast, to miss it. And in some areas, it's okay to miss it. But as it pertains to our text today, what James wants us to know is that in some areas, it's not okay to confuse the counterfeit for the real, in particular as it pertains to your faith. Today what James wants to do is put a microscope on our faith to examine whether or not our faith is real or if it's fake, if it's genuine or if it's counterfeit. Now, some of us are experts at being able to see the counterfeit faith in others. How many are really good at that? You can call out all the fake and phony Christians around you. Some of you are experts in that, maybe even having a PhD, advanced training in picking out counterfeit Christians. But this is not James' exercise today. His exercise is not for you to examine someone else's faith, but for you to examine carefully your own to see whether or not it is real. Let's go to uh, James chapter 2. 
And we're going to finish out James chapter 2 today, and what we're going to see as we look at verses 14 through 26 is that genuine faith is revealed through action. So James says that the number one way that you can tell the difference between counterfeit faith and genuine faith is through the actions of a person. So we're going to look first at verses 14 through 17, and what we're going to see here is that faith without action is dead. Look at what James says here. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You read this by James, and it seems pretty clear what he is arguing, but some of you were with us as we did our study of the book of Romans. How many were were with us when we studied through Romans? Let me see your hands. You, as you read this, as you hear me read this, should say, wait a minute, Pastor Chris, pump the brakes. You spent about 12 weeks walking us through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 and convincing us that faith in Christ alone is enough for salvation, that faith in Christ apart from the law, faith in Christ apart from works is sufficient for salvation or justification in the eyes of God. This is what the reformers would have called sola fide. It is a Latin term that means faith alone. And this is what the Protestant Reformation was all about. It's about the recapturing of that doctrine. And so the careful hearer, student of the word of God, should say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is there a contradiction between what James is telling us here and what Paul told us in the book of Romans? Because clearly, James asked the question in verse number 14, he asked the question, can that faith save him? Can a faith apart from works save us? Well, in order to understand this, you got to know the difference between both the people that James and uh, the difference between the people that James and Paul are writing to and the difference between the problems that James and Paul are trying to address. Now, I'm going to give you a 30,000 foot view of this text. It's about the best I can do in about 25 minutes to give you an overview. But for those of you who want to go deeper, up under the megaphone, icon on our website this week is a recommended commentary by J.I. Packard. It's uh, called Knowing the Bible, the Book of James. I recommend it if you want to go deeper in this. Now, to understand this text, you have to know that the Bible uses the word faith in three different ways as you read throughout the scriptures. The first way, and you may want to take note of this, is to put your trust in a person. When the Bible tells us to place our faith in Jesus Christ, what it is saying to us, as Paul references in in, uh, Romans 4 in particular, but throughout the book of Romans, that it is our faith or trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross alone that saves us or justifies us in the eyes of God. So the first way that the Bible uses faith 
is to trust in a person, namely trusting in Jesus for our salvation. Does that make sense? The second way the Bible uses the word faith is with the definite article in front of it, the faith. And when it talks about the faith, such as Jude saying that we should contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, what it's talking about is a set of beliefs, the set of tenets, or to put it a different way, the teachings of Jesus that is the basis for our faith. To contend for the faith is to defend and commend to others the teachings of Christ as the basis for uh, trust in God. Within the third way that the Bible talks about faith is as a lifestyle. When someone is referred to as living out their faith in Christ, not by their words, but by the deeds as well, this is the lifestyle, the corresponding lifestyle that should accompany genuine faith in Christ. Now, this is what James is after. Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, he is writing to a group of Christian, I'm sorry, a group of uh, new converts to Christ that were in Judaism that were raised under the law, not like most of us. Most of us are not Messianic Jews or Jewish believers in Jesus. We had no attachment to the law, and, and, and very few of us probably felt that trusting in the law would save us or doing the works of the law would save us. But that's what Paul was contending with when he writes to those who are in Rome, who are believing in Jesus from the Jewish community. He is saying to them, the law cannot save you. And even the Gentiles who came to faith in Christ, who may have been told by Jews that you got to follow the law, he is saying that the law is not going to save you. It is trust in Christ alone that justifies us in the eyes of God. Well, what James is concerned about is how our private faith goes public. See, it's one thing to be justified in the eyes of God. It's, not, it's another thing for the community of believers to know that you have trusted in Christ in a genuine way. And it's this type of faith, this lifestyle faith that James is after. And what he is saying is that apart from evidence, how do I know you really have believed? Words enough are not enough for me to know that you really have believed. How many know that we can say anything, but our actions reveal who we really are? To put it another way, you will know a tree by its, by its fruit. And this is what James is arguing. He is dealing with people that aren't so much struggling with the law as a basis for their justification. No, he's dealing with an entirely different problem. He's dealing with people who say they trust in Christ, but their actions don't confirm that. There is no corresponding evidence. And so look at the example that he uses here in verse number 15. He uses an example that would have been consistent with his entire message of chapter 2, and that is how do you relate to your possessions? Are you defined by your possessions? Hopefully not, because the Bible says it's not our possessions that define us. Are you possessed by your possessions, or have you surrendered them to the Lord? And one of the ways we know that is how we treat those who are rich and how we treat those who are poor. Hopefully, all men are treated equally in our eyes, because all men are equal in the eyes of the cross. 
All are sinners in need of grace. All who have trusted in Christ are joint heirs with him. It's not our economic status that makes us uh, moral or virtuous or immoral and condemned. It is our faith in Jesus alone. But what James argues here is this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, so clearly this is someone who is in a tough season of life, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and fill without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What, what James is not doing here is contradicting Paul. He is not saying that a genuine faith in Jesus saves and justifies you in the heart of God, in the eyes of God. What he is arguing and what he is inviting us to do is examine your faith. Let's make sure it really is a genuine faith and a live faith and not a dead faith. Because a dead faith doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help you to experience the grace and salvation of God, and it doesn't help those that we are called to serve. No, you need a lifestyle for that. You, you need to turn your faith into actions, your words into deeds. As Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for our spiritual family. We ought to lay down our lives for those who have needs. What Paul is, I'm sorry, what James is saying here is that if there's a need in our midst and you just can see that need and not be compelled by love by that need, something's wrong with your faith. And you might argue, well, what about the time that I came to the altar? What about the time that I responded to the preaching? What about the time that I prayed that prayer? And James would say, I don't know whether or not that was genuine or not, or if that was counterfeit. You need to examine, but the way that you will know the counterfeit from the real is through your actions. Does that make sense? You know, there's a lot of scriptures in the Bible that gives us warning passages of, uh, against having a counterfeit faith. One is Matthew chapter 7. If you've read that before, Matthew 7 gives us a picture of what the day of the Lord will be like. And there'll be those who will stand before, before the Lord and say, did not we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he's going to respond to them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Anybody ever read that before? Man, is that a sobering passage. Well, I see this as equally sobering that I can confess that I am a Christian, but the real uh, test, the real litmus test, the real proof that's in the pudding, the real evidence that corresponds with that faith, that confirms that it is a living faith, a genuine faith, will be how I respond to the needs that are presented to me. There's two things that this text assumes. Number one, this assumes community, that we are living in close enough proximity to one another to know each other's needs. Because how else will we know the needs among us unless we are in community with one another? One of my deep prayers for this church is that we will realize Yes, how much we need Jesus, but, how, but also how much we need one another in order to live the Christian life. 
We need one another. We need to be in community with one another. Christ has not called us to live as lone rangers, living out our faith in isolation. One of the most disruptive things about COVID is that it's produced an isolation that some still haven't recovered from. Now, I'm sympathetic to that, but I want to remind you at every opportunity I have that you need Christ and the community. You need Christ and the church. You need Christ and your spiritual family if you're going to live out your faith. Amen? And how many can pray with me that this season of spiritual isolation will quickly come to an end and that we will once again experience deep intimacy and relationship and community one with another? You need community. But this text also presupposes you are looking for opportunities to serve others. Because that's what Christ did, isn't it? Isn't that what Christ did? He saw our spiritual needs, the, the bankruptcy of our soul, the fact that we had a crushing sin debt that we could not pay. He saw the blind and he healed them. He saw those who are trapped in prison and he freed them. Christ looked for needs and he responded to it. You know, earlier today we talked about these uh, blessing bags, these winter care kits that we are being asked to respond to. And there's, there's two ways for you to, to uh, respond to it. It's either you hear the announcement and it's something that's easy to blow off or you recognize that behind every one of those backpacks that are out there in the lobby there's a person, there's a person who is deeply in need of these physical and material things. Think about the power of a backpack, the power of a backpack to say uh, maybe to a young teenage boy who's trying to finish high school, and I just dropped one of my uh, inserts there, but, but maybe it says to him, your parents may have abandoned you and, and you don't have a place to stay. I, I remember in high school having friends that literally went from one friend's house to another friend's house because the face of homelessness is not always someone living on the streets. It's someone who doesn't have a permanent place to lay their head. But maybe through a blessing bag, through a winter care kit, we can say to that person, your mom and dad may have forgotten you, but Christ has not forgotten you. Or maybe to a single mom who's a waitress trying to provide for her kids, living out of a minivan, trying to make ends meet, we can give a bag that is full of supplies that says to her that you are not forgotten, that God sees you. There are thousands upon thousands of people who need the church to respond to the fact that they don't have what they need to survive a winter like we're in. And what James says is that if all we do is to say, be warm, go in peace, be filled, we'll pray, hope it works out for you, that that's not enough. He says, if that's the type of community we are, then we need to evaluate our faith to see if it's genuine. How many pray that when you stand before the Lord, you won't be found with a counterfeit faith? How many want to have a real and genuine faith before Jesus? And then he goes on. 
And in the next section, we're going to look at verses 18 through the end of the chapter. We're going to see faith with action is alive. Look at what he says in verse number 18. But someone will say, he's anticipating the argument, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you uh, my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Let's stop for right there. Let's stop for just a moment right there. Here is what James is arguing. He's arguing now not against the difference between the first type of the use of faith, trust in Jesus, versus the third, lifestyle. Now he's arguing the second versus the third, this doctrinal faith. That there are those who feel like the only thing God is looking for is for us to have right theology. That somehow if you pass a theology test, that that is enough to be justified in the eyes of God and in the Christian community. But James says, again, pump the brakes, let's slow down for just a moment. You think you do good that you have right doctrine. And he would affirm that, that right doctrine is very important. But right doctrine that is disconnected from corresponding action proves that you really don't believe the doctrine that you say to profess. And he goes right to the heart of the foundation of our doctrine, belief in God. He says here in verse number 19, you believe that God is one. Now he's referencing the Shema, which is the foundation of belief in Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number uh, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, he is one. This is the gift that Judaism gave to the world, monotheism. We carry that tradition over into Christianity that the Lord is one. And so you do right to profess that he is one. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. But don't be too impressed. Because even the demons believe that and shudder. How many want to have a greater faith than the demons. I hope your hand goes up with that, right? Hopefully your bar isn't demon faith. Hopefully you want to have greater faith than that. Well, how do we have a faith that is genuine and alive? Verse number 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that the faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let's stop there for just a moment. Because again, for those who read Paul, you'll say, wait a minute. I thought Abraham, according to Romans 4 and 4, was justified by faith apart from the law. He was in the eyes of God. His trust in God alone, when God visits him and his wife, Sarah, in uh, Genesis 15, verse number six, they were well past uh, giving birth, those years of giving birth, up in age, him a uh, hundred or so, her 90 years old, well past giving birth, God says, I'm gonna bless you with a son, and they believe God, and it was credited to them as righteousness. James says, I agree with Paul, that in the eyes of God, his faith, Abraham's faith, is what justified him. But that's private faith. 
When does that faith go public? Well, that faith went public in Genesis 22 when God comes back to Abraham and says, sacrifice that son of promise on the altar to test him, and Abraham was willing to obey. That's when the world knew that Abraham had faith. Abraham could say he had faith all he wanted, but how are you and I to know he has faith? He can say he trusts in God, but I can't tell whether or not you trust in God apart from confirming evidence. And that confirming evidence is obedience to his word. And that's not in the easy thing only, but that's in the hard thing. Can you imagine how hard it must have been beyond imagination for those of us who have children to be able to think of God saying, give me your son that you have been waiting for and believing for. Yet Abraham, willing to obey God in the hard thing, confirms his private faith publicly before all of us. And so it is with you and I, when God calls on us to obey him even in the hard things, we confirm for ourselves and for the watching world that we really do believe God. But when we are unwilling to be obedient, we have reason to be insecure about our faith. Some of you are insecure today about your faith and in part because of a lack of obedience. But when you are obedient to God's word, you have reason to be confident that my faith is not dead, it's alive. My faith is not counterfeit, it is real. It is a genuine article. But he doesn't stop with Abraham, he goes on. He moves on from a patriarch Tell us the story of a prostitute. Verse number 25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I, I love James. This man is brilliant. He is brilliant in his theology, but he is also uh, brilliant in his analogies. He is giving us this picture for a reason. He is helping us to understand his main point. And don't miss the main point, that if I want to know real from counterfeit, fake from uh, 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 that which is genuine, if I want to know alive faith from dead faith, look at the confirming actions. Do you see that? That I need to see acts of obedience in my life in order to know that I am genuine. In other words, if you are professing to be a Christian and you have no spiritual pulse, no hunger for worship, worship doesn't move you, no hunger for the word, no passion for prayer, no genuine submission and obedience, then you should be questioning your faith and you should go back to God and say, God, I want to have a genuine faith that lives like I see in the word of God. That doesn't mean that there won't be seasons of struggle in your life, but that does mean that you should see a desire, prevailing desire for obedience that corresponds with action. That's his main point. But his secondary point, which is also equally beautiful, is that Christ has come for patriarchs and for prostitutes. That Jesus is the equalizer. 
I don't care what your background is. You can be up and out and down and out. You can be a social elite or a social outcast. You can be a patriarch or you can be a prostitute. But if you put your faith in Christ and you're willing to live for him and follow him, he allows you to be in the hall of fame of faith as well. He allows you to experience the outpouring of his grace, the riches of his mercy, to be joint heirs with Jesus. How many know we are all equal at the feet of the cross? And if Christ saves me, I am equal to you. If Christ has saved you as well, praise God for the blood. And so friends, today I encourage and implore you to trust in Jesus, to look for needs that you can meet, and to respond when it's placed before you. And when you see the Spirit calling you, nudging you, wooing you, the day that you hear his voice, harden not your heart. And if today you know that my faith in Christ is not real, it's not alive, it's not genuine, today I encourage you to put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of what real faith looks like. Thank you for not allowing us to cheapen it. Jesus, you are Lord of all. We hallow your name. We exalt you. But Lord, we want to be like you. We want to be like you in word and in deed. We want to follow you. We want to love like you loved, serve like you served, care for people like you care for people. So Lord, may it be true of us. May there be corresponding evidence to confirm publicly our trusting you privately. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.